And greetings, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of Snakes on the Diamond. It'll be me again today. Wes is still sick. We're gonna get to uh, get to talk about the Diamondbacks and the trade deadline today, as well as where they are right now and trying to get ahead in the wild card race down the final third of the season. So if you uh, if you're someone here on the show the first time here. Uh, make sure to hit that subscribe button and leave a like comment down below. If you think the D backs have a chance to make the playoffs this year, they currently stand at 57 51 on pace for probably 84, 85 wins, which is, uh, I would say if you based off the D backs preseason expectations, I say without it's pretty decent, but certainly expectations are a little bit different just on how the, se- the direction of the season has gone. The ups and downs of it. But more or less, uh, we're going to try and continue that substreak. Can't see on the board behind me, but we're at 10 days now, including today. Let's keep that substreak rolling. Let's not let it end. Don't make me pull out the birthday card. But I digress. Uh, so anyway, you can follow me on Twitter at MikeMcDMLB. Like I said, uh, I covered... It's like I cover the team for Fan Nations Inside the Diamondbacks, along with Jack Summers and Jake Oliver. Got a three-man team going today, and uh, got a three-man team starting today. Anyways, I did. Uh, anyways, moving on to the topics of the day, and the topics of the, the main topic of the day, obviously being the aftermath of the trade deadline. So we look at the Dimex of the trade deadline this year. Their big addition, obviously, was closer Paul Seawald. While they made some more moves with the bullpen, they dropped uh, the trade Andrew Chafin to the Brewers in exchange for right-hander Peter Strezelecki. And uh, Strzelecki was coming off a pretty good 2022, a little bit downside 2023 season in which the uh, num- uh, in which the uh, ERA didn't necessarily match the peripherals. So they're kind of banking, um, buying, I said, I guess you could say buying low, selling low on Chafin. Chafin, unfortunately, as I mentioned in yesterday's episode, hadn't been doing a good job of getting the left-handed hitters that he faced out as they have been on base at a 417 clip, which means he's getting outs less than 60% of the time. For the type of batters he was paid to get out. And then look, uh, and then the two additions afterwards, they picked up Tommy Pham and Jace Peterson. Peterson made his debut yesterday, one for three, and caught stealing in the seventh inning. And then, uh, Bam should report to the team today. They'll have to make a 40-man roster move. They're, in fact, they'll have to make two 40-man roster moves today as not only will Pham be joining the team, but also pitching prospects slates at Coney. And we'll get to that later on in the show and talk about tonight's game. So, at the beginning of the year, we talked about... Uh, so Mike Hazen talked about what was, in his mind, a successful season. And the successful season... And these were the parameters he outlined were one to be aggressive buyers of the trade deadline. That's uh, something we'll discuss late uh, discuss first. And then second was to be playing meaningful games, competing for and competing for a playoff spot in the final week of the season. Jury's still out on number two, but based on their, if you were to extrapolate their record, although they're definitely overperforming their run differential by three or four games, but if that were to hold, they're definitely in a situation where they could be playing meaningful games at the tail end of the season. So we're still so on objective one, you might say that yes, and then objective two, we'll find out. But on objective one, it was I'm going to make the distinction here between buyers and aggressive buyers. So nine max were clearly buyers because they bought more than they, they uh, added a closer added a right-handed bench bat 
to their roster, although that did cost them some major league pieces. Like I said, Seawall cost them Rojas and Canzone, and then Dimex had to swing a trade to try and fill the gap by Rojas. That's why Jace Peterson is here. And I view Chafin more as an addition by subtraction type move, just simply because he wasn't getting the job done. Although Arizona did not pick up another left-hand reliever, so that move kind of... In a vac, it's now kind. Of, you can kind of evaluate that sort of in a vacuum. I was hoping they'd pick up another lefty for the bullpen, but I guess that never materialized. I'm going to be a little bit worried with key left-handed outs because Mansupply and Nelson aren't necessarily guys I'd like seeing pitch after the seventh inning. So we'll just have to just. Uh, it could be a situation where they may use more of a traditional setup. Man, I know Scott McGuff has pretty decent numbers against left-handed pitching. We'll pull up. McGuff splits. Splits for 2023, and obviously, we wouldn't be surprised to see a reverse platoon. So, against left handed hitters, McGuff's holding him to a 148 average with a 531 OPS, the strikeout to walk ratio of 30 to 8. So if the D-backs were to need some key left-handed outs, I think they're in a situation where Scott McGuff is a better choice than a left-handed reliever. And that's just how it is. So I think, like I said, Seawald, obviously the ninth inning, and then you kind of just match. I think you put McGuff either, and you have McGuff and Ginkle kind of match up the seventh and eighth inning if it's a close ball game. But I think uh, usage might have scuttled that yesterday. Yesterday, I know they had a 3-3 game after 6, although it was 3-0 after the top half of the 6th inning. The top, and it was kind of frustrating watching the 6th inning yesterday. And obviously, Gallon isn't going to get necessarily get overly criticized because, again, 6 innings, 3 runs is a quality start, and you'll take a quality start even from your ace. It just felt, um, that six, it's kind of just started cascade. It's kind of just how the game kind of cascaded and it's been a bit of a problem for gown of late. Look at the, uh, St. Louis start and then the, uh, Braves start on top of that. The home runs have been a bit of a problem. And I know, uh, that was sent to the, I know that, uh, the broadcast booth commented on it. Gallon since his gallon had given up two home runs in his first 12 starts of the year. Since then, has only since then has only had one start in which he hasn't given up a home run, so that's the kind of worrisome thing for me with last night's game. They weren't even able to get the ball. They weren't even able to get the ball to the back end of the bullpen with the fortifications that they made and guys stepping up during the season. That's just how it. That's just how it ended up being. So if you look at that game. They had a 3 nothing lead in the seventh. That their three home runs in their last two trips to the plate. They had a 3 nothing lead on Alex Cobb. And then they had two outs, nobody on after Jock Peterson smashed the ball right at the Cattell Marte for an easy 4-6-3 double play. So after that, it's like, okay, and now Gallon's cruising. His pitch count's only 77 after uh, five and two-thirds. Nobody on. And then just a very bad sequence. And it looked like Gallon, and up to that point, Gallon had been dominating San Francisco. That start. So then, so then you got two strike count on Blake Sable, left the fastball up and out over the plate. That got lined in the left field for a hit. Next batter, Luis Matos. Jumped ahead, couldn't finish him off, and then threw him. Two hittable, a strike on, I guess you could say two hittable, but you kind of have to throw a strike in that situation, ran the count full. Matos split the right center gap for a double, and because of how deep that gap is, and then Sable running with two outs, there wasn't even a play at home plate, so now it was 3-1, that wasn't necessarily a big deal. Jumps ahead of Crawford after blowing an elevated fastball by him, second pitch, leaves one belt high out over the plate, and right where Crawford wants it. He puts a good swing on it, hits a long home run in the center field tie game, and it just felt like the momentum, D-backs momentum built from not only last night's game, but up to that point, gone. Right there, one swing in the bat. It just felt like that. And that was kind of the worrisome thing. It's like, 
when you hand your ace a three nothing lead after six innings, you're hoping that you still have a lead. It, hand, not six innings, sorry. Hand your ace lead in the sixth inning. Three have a three nothing lead in the sixth. You're hoping that you go into the seventh with that lead. And then that kind of just began beginning of the end right there that shifted the momentum to San Francisco. And, was, and then at that point it felt like it was just a matter of time before they'd score that fourth and that fourth and winning run at some point. The Dimebacks have been having trouble putting runs on the board over the last five weeks. Then we go into the seventh inning. Miguel Castro comes in. Looks like he's about to walk Pollock. Then he throws two two good strikes to jump back to full count and then gets Pollock to swing in a sinker that basically took a right turn when it got the home plate. Then the next batter faces Lamont Wade Jr. Again, falls behind 3-0, throws a strike, and then grooves a 3-1 fastball, and Wade, just, and Wade launches it into the right field stands. Didn't quite make the cove, but it counts the same. So when Wade put that in there, it's like, well, that's not good. And that brought up the point of kind of since June 4th, uh, the June 4th outing where Castro gave up the go-ahead grand slam to make Rose, um, Eddie Rosario. It's just it was just a continuation of a what I would consider a bad trend. And if you look at Miguel Castro since. June 4th. Castro is 2 and 4 with a 6.63 ERA. Since June 4th and we're talking now 22 appearances. It was a bit troublesome. Fortunately, the D-backs only signed a one-year deal with Castro, but we're at the point he's on pace to pick up his uh they're on pace to pick up an option for 2024. And since he's not going to hit the 40 games finished, it's not a player. It doesn't become the option doesn't become a player opt out. So looking at his numbers and I'm going to pull this up real quick. So for everyone to see, if you're watching on YouTube, if you're listening in on Apple podcasts, I'm just wait, just wait for me here. And I'm going to pull those numbers up. So pitch pitching game log. I can find the right. Okay, that's not it. Well, this isn't good. I can't find it. Let's try again. Oh. Here it is. So if you look at the numbers, Miguel Castro over that stretch is two and four, one out of three in saves, and one hold. So over that stretch, this we're talking 22 games, 19 innings, has walked 11. Batter struck out 14, five home, <clears throat> five home runs. So while he's holding opposing batters to a 194 average, when he gives up hits, it's not. Five of the 13 hits he's given up are home runs, which coupled with walks is a pretty toxic combination for a pitcher. Walks ahead of strikeouts, which is why you see his fielding independent pitching metric of 7-11. So it's not, not a case of where it's just unlucky. He's been legitimately awful <laughs> over that stretch. And... That's something that's plagued the Diamondbacks quite a bit. As you see, it's four losses. And Castro was going into that went into that game three and one with uh, he went into that game three and one and six saves. It was pretty much up to that point. He was. So his first 20, so if we subtract the first 27 games was very good. Last 22, he's been very bad. So then the question is, what do you do with him? 
You kind of have like an equally, you have almost equally twice, you have equal lengths of being on both extremes for a pitcher. And he comes up and he's only 11 appearances short, whereas 2024 option vests. And I, so that decision, whether or not they should hold on to him for 2024 is going to come up much sooner than they think. So based on, even if they were to cut back his usage, it's like based on number of appearances, we could probably project him to hit that 60th appearance out of the bullpen sometime around the first week of September, if not later. He's on pace to get right around 70, 70 games play if you go by the uh, fact we're exactly two-thirds of the way through the season with 108 games. So after the 108 games, you can just extrapolate two of the three that he has got 49 games, so that extrapolates to 72. And 72 is well beyond. 72 games and then 26, 27 games finished. The way that's going to work out is his 2024 option vests, but it would not give him the opt-out to test the free agent market. So that's kind of an interesting conundrum. I think D-backs are in a situation where you maybe look at the next three or four appearances and then you got to make your decision on that, whether or not to keep him for 2024. In the situation where they ask, Okay, maybe it's usage. Maybe he's not a closer, setup man. Maybe we use him as a middle guy. It's like, we'll take a look at that contract. Take a look. Uh, so taking a look at that contract. Contract, the vested option is $5 million. And I'm, I will say this right now. I don't think Castro is worth $5 million. He's also got can't finish his bonus, so he's already got fifty thousand each for twenty five, thirty, thirty five, seventy five thousand each for forty and forty five. And then he's got a, his next appearance will trigger a one hundred thousand dollar bonus, and then another one at fifty five. So if the twenty, so at sixty appearances plus a clean physical. Castro would have his 2024 option vest. Kind of look at the bullpen and you ask yourself, it's like, look at the bullpen and try and figure out how to match it up from that point forward. I thought it was a pretty good gamble. It didn't work. I thought it was a pretty good gamble. Get a guy that throws 98 with a lot of movement. It didn't work out. Unfortunately, Castro kind of continued his uh, inconsistent run of inconsistency. That's, Kind of had him bouncing around from team to team. It just didn't work out in Arizona's case. All right, so the next topic, Tommy Pham. So Pham should help the Dynamax lineup against lefties, although defensively is limited to left field DH, mostly D. I would say probably more so DH. Certainly not fills a need now with Longoria on the IL. And D-backs going with a Peterson Rivera platoon at third base, although I'm not sure what's going to happen when Longoria comes off the IL. Can't imagine a Torrey, who calls himself a pitching and defense guy, is going to necessarily go with an outfield that has both Guriel and Pham. But at the same time, you kind of also want to play Rivera and Longoria in the same lineup, so it's going to be an interesting, interesting juggling act, I, I would say. I do that, but Fam certainly offers more punch than everyone except Longoria against lefties. So I mentioned in the uh, so I mentioned in the trade article with Tommy Fam that Fam is does his best work against left-handed pitchers. So Fam in his career against lefties is a 274 hitter with an 846 OPS against lefties. A lot more. Uh, let me see. That's where more of his power, more power comes into play. So if we look exclusively at this year, there's a much bigger, uh, there's a much bigger platoon split left versus right. Although 
there's enough bat against righties that you could play him as an everyday DH if necessary. So again, this year he hasn't hit for much power against right-handed pitchers in terms of home run power. It's been mostly doubles against lefties. It's kind of the other way around. He's hitting more home runs against lefties with eight of his 10 home runs coming against lefties while 13 of his 15 doubles are coming against right-handed pitchers. It's a weird, interesting dichotomy. He's also capable of stealing a base. He's got, he's uh 11 or 12 in stolen bases. So, he certainly knows, I would say he certainly knows how to steal a base. And that kind of fits into the team's MO of being a, the team's MO of, be, of running, of trying to be aggressive on the bases. Although the last three or four weeks, they've been making some very careless outs on the bases. Perdomo last night getting picked off first base was a big one. And McCarthy had gotten picked off three times in a week. In a one week span, that kind of one week's span worth of games, I should say. We have to account for the fact that one of them happened before the All Star break, and two more happened after. So I think for the D backs, I think it's like limiting the mistakes on the bases. I think gives them a better chance to score runs. Although limiting their mistakes without Curbing the aggression is kind of the key. Obviously, Corbin Carroll seems to have figured that one out, being 33 of 36 in stolen bases, and he seems well on pace to get at least 40. He's on pace. He's kind of on that pace for 50. It's like he's that kind of that close. He could have, like, if he has a good week of stolen bases, that you'd be back on pace for 50. Although I'm not necessarily sure that Carroll will be the first National League rookie to hit 30 homers and steal 30 bases. I think the home runs are. I think the whole, it's going to be close for number 30 if it happens. Anyway, that should, uh, having fam in the lineup could allow the D-backs to take Thomas out of the lineup against left-hand pitchers, which is also a big improvement. It's like as good as Thomas the hits against right-hand pitchers, especially at home. When I watch him hit against left-hand pitchers, some of the bats just don't look competitive. It feels like sometimes he's just either he's it's a case of guessing wrong a lot or he's trying to walk against left-handed pitchers. Just isn't confident enough to uh, swing the bat. That's definitely a bit of a worry. If you look at Tom Thomas's numbers against left-handed pitchers have been over have been stayed quite a bit this year. Although against right-handed pitchers, he's uh, been increasingly doing more damage. A little bit of a disappointment, obviously, top prospect that had a, it was given a plus hit tool throughout his minor league career, kind of has a significant platoon split. I don't know if it's a case of just, uh, once they, fig- once they kind of quiet down the, uh, the noise, I suppose, in his setup, I think maybe he starts taking off. Sometimes his feet kind of get all over the place and that's the, uh, issue with the very l- Long, I guess you could say a very long setup with a big leg kick and trying to just get everything on time. And that's that's going to definitely be an issue as he ages and then he doesn't just move as fast and, that, and isn't as athletic. Because up through the minor leagues, Thomas did make it work because he is that athletic. The situation where the swing would play in the minor leagues but could get exploited in the big leagues and that's kind of what's happened here. So now we'll move on to stand. We'll look, take a look at the standings and we'll also take a look at uh, what they can do. And obviously teams are going to go get hot or cold. Teams are going to get hot or cold depending on uh, how things go. And it's a situation where I would say there are seven teams in the mix for the wild card. Eight. If eight, if you want to include whoever wins the NL central. Pulling up the standings for today. Standings today for the wild card. You can see San Francisco. Philadelphia and Milwaukee hold the three wild card spots while Arizona and Miami both sit a game back. Chicago three and a half back and San Diego is five back. 
think you're in a situation where there are seven teams who see themselves as wild card contenders. And the Padres and the Cubs have a much better run differential than the five teams ahead of them. I can't say for sure that run differential during the season necessarily. As much of a value, theoretically, your record should regress to your run differential, but there are certain games that can affect that number, whereas it's like you get blown out, but you end up making it respectable at the end, like the Dimex did in the series finale against the Cardinals. Or when you lose, you lose by a lot. Kind of like how the Dodgers series played out at the beginning of the year. And Arizona was outscored by 13 runs, but split the series. So take out that series, Arizona's 55 and 49 with a run differential of plus 12. And that's kind of, that's kind of interesting. But I do think the D-backs are playing more towards their run differential than they are, than they are to their record. They got two more games. They're two games back at San Francisco. So winning the series would close the gap. But it's not necessarily a surefire thing because Arizona's throwing two rookies ahead of San Francisco, Slade Ciccone tonight, and then Brandon fought tomorrow. Ciccone making his major league debut tonight at 645. And then fought making career start number nine. So that's kind of the, uh, that's the standings. So we can kind of just pivot around towards the trade returns that we've seen and kind of just put a bow on this trade deadline. Kind of the thing that, so the big theme in this trade deadline is teams are not necessarily looking outside of the Mets. Mets were the only team that kind of did this. The Mets were looking to maximize their talent return and the level of pros, the level of prospect was that wasn't necessarily an issue. Whereas everyone else, I think the main return was guys in double a guys that could come up either this year or next year. If you look at the Jordan Montgomery trade, the big get was that one infielder's name. I can't remember how to pronounce. Okay. Thomas to JC. As well as Takoa Roby as the kind of the big uh, big prospects at the time of the trade. And MLB Pipeline listed them as the number 14 and number 11 prospects. And uh, so JC is an infielder who projects either to play at third or sh- second. I almost said shortstop, but I meant second base. A non-shortstop infielder. Non-shortstop infielder with pretty decent hitting tools. And then Takoa Roby is a guy with, uh, you probably project more as a four, four or five starter. But it has pretty decent stuff. He actually nearly, he took a no-hitter into the, I forget, I think it was the sixth inning against Amarillo in one start. And then uh, it got undone. Had 2 nothing lead with a no-hitter going, and then two batters later, tie game. Tie game, and lost it to A.J. Vukovic and Davison De Los Santos. Of course, we have De Los Santos as D-back's number 10 prospect. It was one of his uh, many home runs, one of his uh, nine home runs he hit on the year. Then going to the uh, Jordan Hicks, got a double-A starting pitcher. That was a good get for the Cardinals. And like I said, from a seller standpoint, I think the Cardinals were the biggest winner at the trade deadline. And then uh, in uh, Sam Robersi is the guy. It was a guy that kind of flashed my attention when I was covering the box score last year with AZ Snake Pit. In uh, high A against the, in pitching against the D-backs high A affiliate in Hillsborough. Then you look at uh, George. Oh wait, I already mentioned Montgomery. So Jack Flaherty didn't fetch much of a return from the Orioles, and it felt like the Orioles had a. If the D-backs were in the same position the Orioles were in, I think they would have been more more aggressive than Baltimore ended up being at the deadline. Although it's kind of you can kind of sell not being aggressive if you're Baltimore because. You've got Rushman under control for a while. Your top Henderson for a while. Your best players are controllable for the foreseeable future. But uh, their rotation will get them swept in the water. Their rotation is, unless they're scoring like set seven runs a game, it's like their rotate their uh, starting rotation isn't going to get very deep into playoff starts. And it's going to, I guess, it's going to tax the strength of their pitching staff, which is the bullpen. Baltimore basically, if they can get six innings with the lead, they're in pretty good shape. But uh, 
I think it's a situation you got to get, you got to do be a little more proactive to try and keep that seven inning lead. Maybe we'll see both. I think we'll see Baltimore do most of their magic in the off season. Same with the Dimebacks with the rotation. It's just that the uh, rental market was too pricey for Arizona. Something that Hazen admitted the team wasn't necessarily in a position where he could be felt comfortable being aggressive as a starting pitch, attack the starting pitcher market. Compared to getting a rental bat on the bench, uh, a closer that was controllable for two years and basically fill a hole that was created by that trade. And then also the Seawall trade kind of has a extra consequence to it. I think it also cements, uh, unless the Diamondbacks do something in the offseason, Season, I think it also cements Cattell Marte as the starting second baseman for next year, good or bad for what it's worth. Doesn't allow them it doesn't allow them to sell high if they wanted to sell high on Marte in the offseason. He has a healthy year, healthy productive year, you sell high on him. Can't do that now because now you gotta that would open up a gigantic hole at second base. They don't have the inter and with the uh Seawall trade, they no longer have the internal candidates to make that move. if they wanted to go there. And I felt like Marte was their best trade chip to get a controllable starting pitcher. The, um, with Seattle being at the top of the list, because that was one of those things where the trades lined up kind of like how Varsha for Ga- uh, Gabriel Moreno lined up last off season. You knew that trade was going to happen. It was just a question of who else was getting dealt. And obviously Guriel also came back in the trade. Now Arizona's going to have to uh, navigate the rest of the season. So they need to get, so at 57-51 to make the postseason, they need to win 30 games. So that is a 30-20, and 20, they have to go 30-24 and 24 the rest of the way. And unfortunately, last night's uh, collapse did not help that. So based on their, I would say based on their current record and kind of current trend, we're probably looking at a team that's going to be hovering around 500 at the end of the season, maybe a few wins more. So in an open, in a completely open National League wildcard spot, the team right now is uh, just not, I would say not good enough to make that run. There's still quite a few holes on that roster. The starting rotation is, they've got two veterans and then there's a lot of wish cashing after that. That and they got a lot of young guys that are developing. And if you're looking to go for the playoffs, that's probably two, three is probably too many. You got. A rook, you got three rookies in the rotation right now. None of them necessarily have a high enough seal. None of them necessarily have like a mid or up top of the rotation type upside. So that's a little bit of a concern. Now, of course, their two veteran starters are controllable through 2025. In Gallon's case, that's when he hits free agency. In Kelly's case, they have an option after 24. They could exercise and keep him around for one more season. So that's kind of the worry. Well, that's kind of their window right now until unless they can extend it by grabbing a pitcher. Pitcher or a pitching prospect with a lot of upside in the offseason. If we look at the uh, team, we'll look at the teams once again in the wild card race. We'll go in picture layout this time. So obviously San Francisco is a weird team where they have where I, f- I feel like San Francisco's overperforming their talent level. Necessarily at 59-49. And uh they have some weird they had some weird voodoo thing going. I swear. Where it makes the Dimebacks play inept when they go in that ballpark. Go to that Oracle ballpark. Philadelphia, obviously we can't discount them. They got hot last when we saw what they can do when they got hot, and they got Pretty solid bullpen. They got a pretty solid bullpen. Their rotation has looked much better than it did a month ago. And when their lineup gets hot, they got they can slug some homers. Of course, their main weakness is their defense isn't very their defense isn't very good. And they've only got maybe two or three positions where they've got a very good defender. That's catcher, second base with Bryson Stott, and uh, center field when Brandon Marsh gets to start. Those are your best three defenders. Their corner, their corner, in, their corner defense. So first base, third base, left field, right field, not very good. Obviously, Kyle Schwarber in left field. 
is kind of the uh, main issue. And sure, we're still going to be playing left field, and that's kind of out of necessity because Bryce Harper's been in. Bryce Harper's been uh, injured. Bryce Harper suffered some pretty bad injuries over the last. 24 months with Phil with Philly. Although when he's been healthy, he's been a difference maker. We saw in that postseason what he could do when he was healthy. And because he pretty much he and Schwarber ended up offensively carrying the team all the way to the World Series. Now, Milwaukee, Milwaukee, I think, is a team that's underperformed their talent level this year. I feel like they should be running away. This should be at least three or four games ahead of Cincinnati in the National League Central. But they have some clear, pretty clear problems like a problems and I feel like their window is starting to close this could actually be their last year last run with their current core because you never know with Yelich's age Corbin Burns's contract situation and the fact that most of their starters are set to hit free agency in the next two within the next two years so you look at that uh, you look at that and you wonder okay I think there's a good chance that Milwaukee starts breaking it up in the offseason but they're not going to do it now because they're eight games over 500 and they're right on Cincinnati's heels for the division. They're half a game back, tied in the loss column. And then obviously have the head-to-head tiebreaker because Milwaukee has pretty much crushed Cincinnati in seven of their last nine games. And there have been quite It's almost like a statement, but with seven wins in that span, they've already got the head-to-head tiebreaker. So it's such an equation where Cincinnati needs a better record to win the National League Central. But Milwaukee, I think if they get hot, I think could take the division. Although Milwaukee's kind of underperformed. So now you look at the Dimex, obviously. The Dimex, they got off to a hot start in April. Then they got the schedule got lighter. They beat up on some pretty bad teams, in my opinion. All the way through the Angels series, and obviously the Angels got better after the D backs left them in uh left them in July. The D backs definitely had a pretty easy schedule running through there, and then the problems kind of started when they Went with Tampa Bay. Tampa Bay, they lost two or three. Then they bounced back to win two or three against the Angels. And then it just it's just snowballed from there. So when they got to fifty and thirty-four on July first, since then they are seven. Seven and seventeen. And I don't even think I want to know what the win we'll look at the win percentage. So seven out of twenty-four, that is under three hundred. And pretty much every facet of the team has collapsed. The bullpen terrible in July. Well, bullpen's been terrible in July. Which is what necessitated the Seawall trade. Ninth inning has been a problem between Chafin, Castro, and McGuff. They just can't get the ninth inning. They just None of the three could get the ninth inning done. That's why they traded for a proven closer and had to give up off their 26-man roster. Much rather... And kind of look at that. You'd much, I'd much rather see what Canzone could have done or what Josh Rojas would have done with health, when healthy. That's because I think Rojas is a better player than Jace Peterson at the current stages of their careers. But we'll never see. We'll never get that. We'll probably never get that opportunity because the team had to trade for somebody to close to that or sell. Those were their two. Those were their two main options. Either go in, or you either buy or sell. Standing Pat was not an acceptable option. And they chose to buy. That's the decision they made, and that's a decision they'll have to contend with for the rest of the year. You just hope that they can... You can just hope that they can just get off. If they can get off the current losing situation they're in, so 7-17 record, the faster they get off this funk, the better chance they have of getting to the postseason. As I said, it's going to take 30 wins to get there. It's going to take at least 30 wins to get there. Now, Miami, obviously Miami made some pretty risky moves. I think Jake Berger's a boom bust player. Doesn't, especially since he doesn't have a true position on the field. I said, he's probably most likely going to slot in as a DH for them. The DH is probably likely Jorge Soler is going to hit the free agent market next next winter after triggering the opt-out. So Berger would slot into the DH role. I'd not necessarily sold on him sticking at third. We'll go up Jake Berger on StatCast.
So in terms of outs above average at third base, Jake Berger's in the 16th percentile with a negative two run, a negative two run value, which is better than last year, which was negative five. And did three outs below average. So you kind of look at it. Okay. So Berger's a guy that needs to mash. And we're talking like 30 home runs mash to justify playing third base. If not, they could put him at the DH role. Not going to particularly hit for a strong average. Given his uh, strikeout rate. Strikeout rate and propensity to chase. If you look at his barrel contact, almost every one out of five, almost one out of every five balls that he puts into play is a barrel more than half. The balls he puts into play are hard hit, 95 mile per hour exit velocity or more. But the problem is he's got a 32, 31% strikeout rate versus a 6% walk rate. That's very much boomer bust. And honestly, I compare that profile to uh, Davison De Los Santos as well. That's the type of profile we might see with uh, De Los Santos in the big leagues. Of course, Berger's got 25 homers. Homers and an 806 OPS. So you can't say that he's a below average hitter. And you can make the argument that based on the quality contact, he's not necessarily. The 214 average might be a little bit below expectations. Because Stackhouse has an expected batting average at 252. An expected slugging at 528, and the slugging percentage is right there with his batting uh, X slug. And he's underperforming his expected weighted on base average. In uh, expl- explaining weighted on base average, it's taking outcomes, walks, singles, doubles, triples, home runs. It has a weight value associated with it. Added up, divided by the number of plate appearances. Play, for instance, and that's your uh, WOBA, or weighted on base average. So that adds up the for Berger, it adds up to 338, with the expected number being 358. So he might be underperforming his bad ball data. data. So that's possibly something that Miami is banking on, although I I don't trust the uh, long-term validity of X stats from year to year. I don't think there's as much um, correlation as opposed to looking at strikeout and walk rates. And for Berger, that's a strikeout rate of thirty over 30%, walk rate under 6%. 7%, so it's it's going to be tough to see him hitting better than 250 in a good year. And of course, if Jake Berger hits 250, we're probably talking 30, 35 home runs. Could drive in 100-plus. And that's kind of the type of bat that the Marlins are looking for at the deadline. They also picked up Josh, they also picked up Josh Bell, who has a pretty decent track record for his career in terms of hitting. But uh, Bell, pretty good track record in terms of hitting with Josh Bell, obviously not having a great year Great year with the, the Guardians, so he got shipped off to Miami at the end of the deadline. And Josh Bell's got pretty normal strikeout walk rates, but the power hasn't shown up, and his uh, balls and play average is a little bit low. Added up to a 95 WRC plus, so he's 5% below the league average hitter. And unfortunately, uh, since Josh, since Bell is a base clogger and doesn't offer a lot of value on defense, that's a pretty negative profile. Now, of course, if you look at the X Woba, it's 40, uh, 45 points higher than his Woba of 308. So, NX number of 353. So the Marlins are banking on 353. Is uh, bouncing back towards regressing towards that number. There's a lot of wish. I feel like there's a lot of wish casting in the Marlin situation, but uh, it works out. They got if it works out, it works out. (coughs) All right, now we'll look at uh. Chicago, I feel like Chicago is in a situation where because of their win streak, they kind of went from selling to buying, and that's kind of how the National League is. There's no nobody necessarily running away with the wild card in the National League. Because San Francisco had a six-game losing streak. Philadelphia started slow, and then Milwaukee and Cincinnati will be tra- 
trading barbs with each other. And Cincinnati to me is a team that will be a force to reckon with starting next year. With a lot of talent they have, I think they're going to wait till the offseason to make their move. It'll be interesting to see what they do. But Cincinnati has the prospect capital to get whoever they want. And of course, that's that's my way of saying good farm system. Get whoever they want. Miami's kind of in that position as well, though. I don't know how strong their farm system is now. And then Chicago, I don't think, has the farm system to get whoever they want. But they have some pretty good players already on their roster now. And you look at Chicago's Chicago's roster, they have a pretty good pitching staff, although I'm not sure how confident I would be in a Mark. Well, I'd be pretty confident as Marcus Stroman as my game one starter. But the rest of that Chicago rotation. And wait, sorry, Marcus Stroman game one, Justin Steele game two, Drew Smiley game three. That's a pretty good rotation, actually. So Chicago has a pretty solid one, two, three, which would one, two, three. And if you have three good stars, you can make it, you can navigate the postseason, in my opinion. So they are pretty interesting. I still think Chicago is better suited to make a run next year, but they didn't necessarily mortgage anything. So they picked up Candelario from the Nationals as their kind of their big move. And Candelario is not necessarily like a a big impact guy, but he certainly makes third base a little less volatile for Chicago. And sometimes that's all. That sometimes that's all you need. Need is just okay. I know what I'm getting from this guy. I know what I'm getting from this position. And obviously they're asking guys like Swanson, Horner, and Bellinger to try and carry their lineup, although Bellinger looks like a major regression candidate given his bad ball data. So that's something Chicago may have to contend with later in the year. And of course the Padres. If anyone thought the Padres were going to sell, I have beachfront property in Yuma to sell you. San Diego's going to buy until they go bankrupt. It doesn't matter what their record is in my opinion. Maybe they would have I know there was a point they were coming close to there's reports out there that they might listen in on impending free agents Josh Hader and Blake Snell but that ultimately never materialized instead. They went out and got Rich Hill and I that's a move that where I'm just like I can't believe Pittsburgh actually got someone who could who could contribute in the major leagues for Rich Hill. Who and then by contributing in the big leagues, I mean could contribute to the big leagues tomorrow for Rich Hill. In uh, G-Man Choi. So, like I said, Pittsburgh came out pretty good in that trade. I think just Jackson Wolf alone in the trade makes it a win for San Diego. And if the other two guys and other two prospects in that trade work out, then it's going to be a big win for Pittsburgh. I feel like Pittsburgh's a team that could. I think Pittsburgh's going to be an interesting team next year. If they can stay healthy, they got plenty of solid role players. I don't know if they have that, like, superstar player necessarily. They got... Solid number two, I think, in Mitch Keller. Dave Bender, one of the best closers in baseball. Key Brian Hayes. And then they got a lot of really good role players. Key Brian Hayes, solid third baseman. Now, obviously, O'Neill Cruz is the player they think is the superstar player. Or as I used to, or as I call him, Statcast God. Statcast God in a football body. Football body type. Being, uh... I'm not sure if uh, if Cruz is okay. So Cruz is still on the 60 day IL because he fractured his ankle back in um, April. I assume he's going to be out for the season. It's a good thing the Dodgers traded him. But yeah, Cruz. They're hoping Cruz is their superstar player. But so what they get out of the draft and then. Uh, of course, Paul Skeens could be in the big league. Could be in the big leagues as early as next year. That's their top prospect, obviously. Because if your number one overall pick isn't your top prospect, what are you doing? So, pretty much, if you look at the wild card here, so the Dynamax have some work to do, and there's a good chance you can make the argument that they're the sixth or seventh best team in this seven-game group. The the talent, based on the talent level, the Dimebacks have to uh, win like they did on Monday, which is win in the key situations. Win, and it's like, get that big hit. Get that big out. Stolen bases. Creating more situations. Using your base running. It's like, 
Your big hitters getting the job done. Marte, Gurriel, Carroll. And I forget what happened in the tenth. Who got the run? Who got the RBI in the tenth inning? Oh, Rivera. The Rivera carrying the lineup would be a bonus. But it was kind. It's kind of like uh, the conflicting real realities in the two games this in this giant series. First game, that's how they got to win when they're not playing well. Second game, they made a mistake. That's how they can't play while they're not playing well. Can't have those. Those are mistakes you can't have. Try to play more like the first and less like the second. It'll be so. It'll be pretty interesting tonight. So Slade Sikoni again goes on the mound for the D backs tonight at uh, nine forty five Eastern, six forty five. You're watching Arizona. I have no expectations on how he'll do because you should never put expectations on a player in his MLB debut. After watching how fought pitched against Texas. So anyway. That's going to wrap up today's show. Again, you can follow me on Twitter at Michael McDMLB. You can check out some of my written work at Inside the Diamondbacks, which you can find at si.com slash MLB slash Diamondbacks. You said we released an article this morning about Bryce Jarvis finishing out the year in the bullpen, trying to manage his workload the final two months of the season as he's kind of close as he's closing in on his innings number from last year. So that's today's article. But once again, make sure to hit that subscribe button, leave a like on the stream video or whatever uploads that we put up after the show, and leave a comment. Leave a comment if you think Slade Sacconi is going to do is going to kick. If Slade Sacconi is going to look awesome in his major league debut, or if you expect him to get shelled based on his uh, two home runs per nine inning rate in AAA. So anyway, that's going to wrap it up. Thanks everyone for watching again. Either watch the replay here on YouTube or you can go to Apple Podcasts for the audio version of the show. The audio version of the show. Um, make sure to follow me on Twitter. I'm going to give an update on when that the Apple Podcasting updates. But anyways, uh, we'll be back on tomorrow. Give an update on uh, how Wes is doing. Doing as well. We'll hope to get him back on the show as soon as possible. And... Continue the discussion, I suppose.